Welcome to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I am David Arla Gates. And I'm Cal Beisner. The Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation exists for the purpose of educating the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The magnificent news that sinners like me can be reconciled to the holy God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for my sins on the cross and who rose again in triumph over death, demonstrating that God had accepted his sacrifice on my behalf and on behalf of all who will have faith in him. We are in the midst of a discussion of a document called The Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship, Subduing and Ruling the Earth to the Glory of God and the Benefit of Our Neighbors. This is the fourth discussion of this document that we've had, and we would encourage you to go back to earlier episodes of Created to Reign and listen to those others. You can also read the document itself on the website of the Cornwall Alliance. Go to cornwallalliance.org, click on Landmark Documents, and you'll find the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship. Previous, we've discussed the fact of God's being the creator of the earth, that it shows his wisdom in creation, that he made man in his image, that he gave human beings dominion over the earth, called us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And we've talked about how a lot of the environmental movement is either pantheistic or atheistic, denying the creator-creature distinction, and how many environmentalists also tend to denigrate human beings, thinking that the world is overpopulated and that we need to reduce human population or at least stop population growth. All of these things we've discussed in past episodes, and so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of those and read the document itself. Today, we come to point number 21 in this document. We affirm that when the Bible speaks of God's judgment on human societies because they have polluted the land, the quote-unquote pollution in mind is consistently not chemical or biological but moral, the pollution of idolatry, adultery, murder, oppression of the weak, and other violations of the moral law of God expressed in the Ten Commandments. We refer there to Psalm 106, verse 38, and Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 10, and 16, verse 18. Following in our pattern of coupling an affirmation with a denial, we say we deny that biblical prophets' concerns about the pollution of any land focus significantly on chemical emissions from agriculture or industry, although prudent study of the risks those pose to human and ecosystem health is a worthy task and can lead to proper efforts to balance risks and benefits. David, talk with us about the importance of recognizing that pollution, while it's a problem, is something that comes along as a normal part of life, and we're always facing trade-offs, and we need to develop skill at making wise choices about those trade-offs. There are two issues to focus on here. First, in the world in which we live, the word pollution 
generally means air pollution, water pollution, trash thrown on the side of the road, for example. Then this gives us the wrong impression when the Bible refers to polluting the land. And as you said, Psalm 106 and Jeremiah 3 and 16 imply that pollution in the biblical context is vastly different. It means removing ourselves from God's ideal condition, such as through adultery, idolatry, violation of God's commandments, and so forth. But we also have to realize that in today's society, we have far less environmental pollution now than we had half a century ago or more. Love Canal, the Cuyahoga River Fire, Los Angeles smog. I grew up. <laughs> yeah. We have recognized that we must have a cleaner environment, and we have worked to achieve that end with some important advances along the way. A growing and developing society can spend the necessary time and effort to provide a cleaner environment. But as, as Cal, you have said, a clean environment is a costly good, affordable only to those who are in an advanced economic state. So going back to the biblical meaning of pollution, we want to hold fast to what is true, and that is to follow the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and to love others as you love yourself. Biblical pollution, therefore, is to stray from God's commandments. One of the reasons why the authors, and I was one of the authors, but there were several others as well who contributed to this document, really wanted to address this point is that many people in what tends to call itself the creation care movement will say that really preventing pollution is an extremely high priority in the Bible. I'm not going to say that the Bible has nothing to say about that. I think obviously when the Bible tells us that we're supposed to love our neighbors, the Bible warns us about not allowing fire to move from our own land if we're using fire as part of the cultivation process onto a neighbor's land and things like that. We have responsibility about that. But people will say the Bible actually talks about the land being polluted and so that should be primary focus for us. If you actually look at the places where the Bible uses that word related to the land, not once does it use it related to a chemical spill, to a fire getting out of control, to agricultural runoff or anything like that. Instead, it uses it related to other sins. So, for example, in Jeremiah 3, beginning at verse 1. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them, like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickednesses. Now, I'm not saying here that this is talking only about sexual immorality, though it is, but it's using sexual immorality as a metaphor for Israel's idolatry and Israel's forming of alliances with pagan nations contrary to God's command about not doing that. And what's interesting is that God here says that that behavior pollutes the land. And so I think when we're talking about polluting the land, we need to 
really put our emphasis where God puts the emphasis, which is on our moral behavior, and particularly whether we are obeying the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image and bow down to it and worship. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. As we obey the Ten Commandments, we will find that that guides us in our proper fulfilling of even environmental stewardship. When we disobey them, we pollute the land. And that means that our task really is to bring people to reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission, where Jesus told the apostles to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. If we will do that, then I believe that environmental stewardship will follow as a matter of course. If we don't put that first, then we will never be good environmental stewards. Number 22 is we affirm that cost-benefit analysis is a proper and critically important aspect of godly dominion over the earth. And this comes from Luke 14, 28. Let me read that to you. It says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? We deny, therefore, that cost-benefit analysis is unprincipled pragmatism or indicates a lack of faith in God. Cal, you can maybe add a little bit more to this, particularly with respect to what was intended at the time it was written. Again, a lot of environmentalists, including people in the evangelical creation care movement, will just say, you should never do anything that is going to do any harm whatsoever to the natural environment. And I think that that's just simply very unrealistic, naive, idealistic. And instead, we need to recognize that there are trade-offs. Life is full of trade-offs. Another verse that was cited in that document at that point was Proverbs 14.4, which says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. If you have no livestock, you don't have a barn full of manure. But if you have livestock, the oxen can pull your plows and the cows can give you milk and things like this. There are trade-offs in life, and we need to recognize those and then learn to think wisely and act wisely about those trade-offs. We will never have a 100% pollution-free world, but we can have a world in which we learn to minimize pollution a world in which we learn to transform some pollution into resources. When we take manure from cattle and use it to fertilize the ground, you've taken pollution and turned it into a resource. So these are things that, frankly, as Christians, we need to take seriously. And just as we can't have a world without pollution, we also cannot have a world without risk. So number 23 says, we affirm that pursuant to sin and the curse, risk is inherent in every human activity, citing Hebrews 9, 27, 
and therefore that it is lawful in principle to balance risk against risk. By contrast, we deny that the mere existence of risk in an activity makes it immoral in principle. There is always a risk in everything we do. If we cross the street, for example, there's always a risk, even if we look twice, that a car or a speeding motorcyclist may wind up hitting us. There's always a risk to driving to the store, that something may happen en route. We take precautions. We try to make sure that we drive carefully. We will use our seat belts and so forth, but the risk does not go to zero. So the mere existence of a risk would mean I can't drive automobiles because that would make it immoral. I can't cross the street because that would make it immoral. In effect, I can't do anything at all because risk does exist. That's the key of 22 is that God wants us not to take unordinary risks, but in particular, we have to balance the risk versus the cost. I'm always amazed that some young people will oppose nuclear energy on the grounds that there are some risks from spent nuclear fuel, but will also be heavily into extreme rock climbing or extreme trail riding on bikes. The risks from those are significantly higher than all the risks that come from using nuclear energy to provide electricity. What we're saying here is the simple reality of risk doesn't mean that you can't use a particular resource. Are there risks associated with using fossil fuels? Of course. There are also risks associated with not using fossil fuels. Are there risks associated with wind and solar energy? Yes, of course. And there are risks associated with not using them. Our task is to learn to measure and compare those risks and to do the best we can to choose the lesser risks that are options in the real world around us. We're not going to live with a risk-free life. Point number 24 says, we affirm that proper environmental prioritization will address greater risks before lesser risks and take into account the opportunity costs of fighting various risks. In other words, that it will recognize that since resources spent to reduce one risk cannot be used to reduce another, it is wise to allocate resources where they will achieve the greatest risk reduction. We deny that spending vast resources to reduce small risks when those resources could be spent to reduce greater risks instead is good environmental stewardship. I think that point comes right straight at the typical way uh, that people think about climate change right now, wanting to spend vast resources to mitigate climate change while ignoring much greater risks that people face. For instance, over the past hundred years, the risk of people dying because of extreme weather events has fallen by over 98%. Now, people want to spend huge amounts of money fighting climate change because they think that climate change brings more extreme weather events, and yet they don't want to spend that money fighting much more obvious risks that are associated with poverty. So point 25 continues, we affirm that environmental policies that address relatively minor risks while harming the poor constitute oppression of the world's poor. For example, 
opposition to the use of abundant, affordable, reliable energy sources such as fossil fuels in the name of fighting global warming, or the suppression of the use of safe, affordable, and effective insecticides such as DDT to reduce malaria in the name of protecting biodiversity, or the conversion of vast amounts of corn and other agricultural products into engine fuel in the name of ecological protection. All of these, we affirm, will create problems and harm the world's poor. By contrast, we deny that the policies above and many others like them are indeed morally justified. Yeah, and what we're pointing to here is the propensity for so much of the environmental movement to put the needs of poor people way behind the needs of an ecosystem somewhere, a rainforest or a wilderness area or a wetland, something like that. And frankly, when we can see people rise out of poverty by using the abundant, affordable, reliable, scalable, instant-on-demand, dispatchable energy that we get from fossil fuels, and when instead energy from wind and solar and other renewables is not abundant but scarce, is not affordable but very expensive, is not reliable but is instead intermittent and is not scalable. It cannot be provided in the vast amounts that are necessary to lift whole societies out of poverty and keep them out of poverty. When the choice is, do we lift people out of poverty or do we fight global warming? Uh, we think that because the risks associated with global warming are far less than the risks associated with poverty, we should put fighting poverty first and then think about climate change. And in fact, what we find is that as you overcome poverty, you also are able to overcome all the different risks that come with climate, whether from storms, from floods, from droughts, from rising sea level, anything else. Wealthy people can protect themselves from those things. Poor people cannot. So overcoming poverty is absolutely the first task toward environmental stewardship. We have been talking about the landmark documents regarding the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. In particular, this is the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship, subduing and ruling the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. You can find these and other documents at cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. 